Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome. Welcome to this gathered community known as Kensington Unitarians. A particular welcome to anyone who's here for the first time today. Uh, we're very glad to have you with us. A welcome to wanderers returning. Um, for anyone who doesn't know me, my name is Jane Blackhall and I work here as Outreach Officer and I've been a member of the congregation since 1999. Um, our minister, Sarah Tinker, is having a well-earned week off and is on her travels, so I'll be leading the service this morning. Our opening words are by Ian Riddle. Come one, come all. Come with your missing pieces and your extra screws. Come with your hard edges and your soft spots. Come with your bowed heads and your upright spines. Come all you flamboyant and drab, verbose and quiet, fidgety and lethargic. All with large vision and tender hearts. All with small courage and tender fears. Bring your lisp and your stutter and your song, your gravel and your drawl and your lilt. Bring your anger and your joy and your righteous indignation, misfits and conformists and everyone in between. Come into this space and be welcome. Bring who you are, bring where you've travelled, bring what you long for. Let us worship together. And let's start by lighting our chalice, the symbol of our worldwide Unitarian and Unitarian Universalist community. It connects us with all those progressive people of faith who went before us, all who choose to join us along the way, and all who will follow after on this wide and welcoming religious path. Our prophets died for the freedom of faith. We are here in their spirit. We are here to practice and sustain our living tradition, to light a chalice, claiming for justice the heat and power of the fire. In our free faith, we are here seeking freedom from despair, the freedom to be loved as ourselves, and the freedom to grow beyond imagination. We are here gathered in the name of all we find holy. Let us give thanks for the gift of gathering here this morning. Let's take those joys and concerns into a time of prayer and reflection now with some words adapted from an old friend of our congregation, uh, Linda Hart. I invite you to join me now in the spirit of prayer. Let us pause here in this time and place and welcome into ourselves and into this gathering the awareness of that which gives us life. So many blessings scattered throughout our days. The morning after a good night's sleep, the presence of someone whose love radiates, the cup of tea warm in your hand and so many blessings scattered throughout the world, the rightness of truth told and fought for, the comfort of the lost found again, the joy of those who come home safe from harm's way. Call to yourself and into this gathering the awareness of that which gives you life 
and holding that power and promise, may we acknowledge that which has torn at our hearts this week. May we acknowledge the loss and the pain and the sorrow that we bear. May we acknowledge our own failings and faults, the frailty of being human. Spirit of love and of life, open our hearts this day and help us to see and to know. Let us see in each other's eyes the reflection of our own and know that we are one. We are inescapably joined to the human family and there are no real strangers. In these moments of stillness, joined with each other, sharing breath in this room, sharing life with all those we meet, one human family, let us open to one another, open to the web of connection that connects us all, to all these companions, to all of humanity, to the world and the wide universe, all turning as one together. And let these feelings of connection, sympathy, compassion and love be with us this day and in the days to come. Amen. Our first reading today is by Kristin Neff, who literally wrote the book on self-compassion. Uh, this is a wonderful, accessible, down-to-earth read on the subject, and she's also made loads of great resources available on her website. Just search for Kristin Neff, and there's all sorts of meditations and great stuff you can download for free. Compassion involves the recognition and clear seeing of suffering. It also involves feelings of kindness for people who are suffering, so that the desire to help to ameliorate suffering emerges. In addition, compassion involves recognising our shared human condition, flawed and fragile as it is. Self-compassion, by definition, involves the same qualities. First, it requires that we stop to recognise our own suffering. We can't be moved by our own pain if we don't even acknowledge that it exists in the first place. Of course, sometimes the fact that we're in pain is blindingly obvious and we can think of nothing else. More often than you might think, however, we don't recognise when we are suffering. Much of Western culture has a strong, stiff upper lip tradition. We are taught that we shouldn't complain, that we should just keep calm and carry on. If we're in a difficult or stressful situation, we rarely take the time to step back and recognise how hard it is for us in the moment. And when our pain comes from self-judgment, if you're angry at yourself for mistreating someone or for making some stupid remark, it's even harder to see both these moments as moments of suffering. We typically don't recognise such moments as a type of pain that is worthy of a compassionate response. After all, I messed up. 
Doesn't that mean I should be punished? Well, do you punish your friends or your family when they mess up? Okay, maybe sometimes a little. But do you feel good about it? Everybody makes mistakes at one time or another. It's a fact of life. One of the downsides of living in a culture that stresses the ethic of independence and individual achievement is that if we don't continually reach our ideal goals, we feel that we only have ourselves to blame. And if we're at fault, that means we don't deserve compassion, right? The truth is, everyone is worthy of compassion. The very fact that we are conscious human beings experiencing life on this planet means that we are intrinsically valuable and deserving of care. We are human and our ability to think and feel combined with our desire to be happy rather than suffer warrants compassion for its own sake. Many people are resistant to the idea of self-compassion, however. Isn't it really just a form of self-pity or a dressed-up word for self-indulgence? These assumptions are false and run directly counter to the actual meaning of self-compassion. Self-compassion involves wanting health and well-being for oneself and leads to a proactive behaviour to better one's situation rather than passivity. And self-compassion doesn't mean that I think my problems are more important than yours. It just means that I think my problems are also important and worthy of being attended to. Rather than condemning yourself for your mistakes and failures, therefore, you can use the experience of suffering to soften your heart. By giving ourselves unconditional kindness and comfort, while embracing the human experience, difficult as it is, we avoid destructive patterns of fear, negativity and isolation. The nurturing quality of self-compassion allows us to flourish, to appreciate the beauty and richness of life, even in hard times. By tapping into our inner wellspring of kindness and acknowledging the shared nature of our imperfect human condition, we can start to feel more secure, accepted and alive. Our second reading today is by an unknown author, though it was popularised by the Buddhist teacher Tara Brack, and this is a slightly abridged version. It's, uh, it's written in the, as the voice of our feelings and sensations, our felt sense, both physical and emotional, and it articulates what those feelings might have to say to us. I am the pain in your head, the knot in your stomach, 
the unspoken grief in your smile. I am your high blood sugar, your elevated blood pressure, your fear of challenge, your lack of trust. I am your hot flushes, your cold hands and feet, your agitation and your fatigue. I am your shortness of breath, your fragile lower back, the cramp in your neck, the despair in your sigh. I am the pressure in your heart, the pain down your arm, your bloated belly, your constant hunger. I am where you hurt, the fear that persists, your sadness of dreams unfulfilled. I am your symptoms, the causes of your concern, the signs of imbalance, your condition of dis-ease. You tend to disown me, suppress me, ignore me, inflate me, coddle me, condemn me. I am not coming forth for myself as I am not separate from all that is you. I come to garner your attention, to enjoin your embrace so I can reveal my secrets. I have only your best interests at heart as I seek health and wholeness by simply announcing myself. I implore you. I am a messenger with good news, as disturbing as I can be at some times. I want to guide you back to those tender places in yourself, the places where you can hold yourself with compassion and honesty. If you look beyond my appearance, you may find that I am a voice from your soul. I may ask you to get more sleep, eat differently, exercise regularly, breathe more consciously. I might encourage you to see a vaster reality and worry less about the day-to-day -day fluctuations of life. I may ask you to explore the bonds and the wounds of your relationships. I may remind you to be more generous and expansive, or to attend to protecting your heart from insult. I might have you laugh more, spend more time in nature, eat when you're hungry, and less when pained or bored. Spend time every day, if only for a few minutes, being still. I am your friend, not your enemy. I have no desire to bring pain and suffering into your life. I am simply tugging at your sleeve, too long immune to gentle nudges. I desire for you to allow me to speak to you in a way that enlivens your highest instincts for self-care. My charge is to energize you, to listen to me with a sensitive ear and heart. You are a being so vast, so complex, with amazing capacities for self-regulation and healing, let me be one of the harbingers that lead you to the mysterious core of your being, where insight and wisdom are naturally available when called upon with a sincere heart. We've now come to a time in the service for meditation. So you might want to put down anything you don't need to be holding. Get comfortable in your chair. You might want to put your feet flat on the floor, maybe close your eyes or soften your gaze. I'm going to read some introductory words um, by Daniel Mead to take us into the silence and then we'll share a good few moments of stillness together and that will be ended by the sound of the bell. If you would grow to be your best self, be patient, not demanding, accepting, not condemning, 
nurturing, not withholding. Self-marvelling, not belittling. Gently guiding, not pushing and punishing. For you are more sensitive than you know. Humankind is as tough as war, yet delicate as flowers. We can endure agonies, but we open fully only to warmth and light. And our need to grow is as fragile as a fragrance dispersed by storms of will to return only when those storms are still. So accept, respect, attend to your sensitivity. A flower cannot be opened with a hammer. You are more sensitive than you know. Compassion is something that we talk about quite a lot here in church. It is perhaps one of the key religious values or practices, one which cuts across many different traditions. Many of you may be aware of the Charter for, for Compassion, uh, a campaign that was launched by the writer and popular theologian Karen Armstrong back in 2009. She used this central value of compassion as a focal point to bring together individuals and organisations of all faiths and none inviting them, inviting us, to sign up to a set of affirmations about the need to promote and enact compassion in every sphere of our lives. And in fact, our own religious denomination here in the UK, the General Assembly of Unitarian and Free Christian Churches, officially became a signatory of the Charter for Compassion a year or two after its launch, endorsing its call for a restoration of compassion as the central value of religion and morality. So I'm sure you'll be reassured to know we're officially in favour of compassion. That's the party line, as it were, and it's probably one of the least contentious generalisations you can make about Unitarians. But it seems to me that we don't talk about self-compassion quite so much. It seems to me that when some people hear the phrase self-compassion, if they hear it at all, it conjures up those thoughts of selfishness, self-indulgence, qualities quite at odds with the acts of self-giving and self-sacrifice, which we might more readily associate with the phrase compassion. Indeed, the Charter for Compassion itself includes this following sentence. Compassion impels us to work tirelessly to alleviate the suffering of our fellow creatures, to dethrone ourselves from the centre of our world and put another there, and to honour the inviolable sanctity of every living being, treating everybody without exception, with absolute justice, equity and respect. It seems to me that that phrase, to dethrone ourselves from the centre of our world, might play into that notion that everybody's important except us. That seems to me slightly in tension with the final phrase about treating everybody without exception with absolute justice, equity and respect. Of course, the Charter for Compassion was written with a certain agenda in mind. Its focus was perhaps more about bringing together different faith groups uh, around a common focus. And in its rush to do that, it perhaps let the self-compassion idea go by the by. Although when Karen Armstrong wrote her follow-up book a couple of years later, 12 Steps to a Compassionate Life, step three was all about compassion for yourself. And in that book, she wrote this. 
the late Rabbi Albert Friedlander impressed upon me the importance of the biblical commandment, love your neighbour as yourself. I had always concentrated on the first part of that injunction, but Albert taught me that if you cannot love yourself, you cannot love other people either. And she goes on to state that once you have started to feel genuine compassion for yourself, then you'll be able to extend it to others. This point seems pretty important to me and worth dwelling on for a moment. I expect many of you will have heard this comparison before, but I often think of that analogy to the safety announcement that is made on airplanes, when the air steward tells you that in the event, in the event of an emergency, you should be sure to put on your own oxygen mask first before you start trying to help anyone else, because you're not going to be helped to anyone if you're stopped breathing. There are a lot of people out there, especially women who have been conditioned to think this way, who feel it's their duty to prioritise everyone else's needs ahead of their own, selflessly taking care of everyone and everything except themselves, routinely and habitually putting their own needs last. But this is a way of being that is ultimately extremely wearing. It can lead to burnout, fatigue and ill health, not to mention resentment and distorted dynamics in relationship. Like we heard in the reading from Anthony earlier on, we will feel the effects in the end. I would say in this, as in so many things, striving for a healthy balance of self and other is key. The Quaker writer Parker J. Palmer takes the same idea a bit further and draws out what I might call the religious dimension of self-care and self-compassion in the words that are on the front of your order of service sheet today. Parker Palmer says, self-care is never a selfish act. It is simply good stewardship of the only gift I have, the gift I was put on earth to offer others. Any time we can listen to the true self and give it the care it requires, we do so not only for ourselves, but for the many others whose lives we touch. So if we accept that self-care is good stewardship, which we do not only for ourselves, but for the many others whose lives we touch, perhaps we can move on to ask, what does self-care look like in practice? It will, of course, look a little different for each and every one of us, but there are a few common strands I'd like to draw out and focus on to help each of us get a clearer sense of how we can practice self-care in our own lives. The first and perhaps most basic strand of self-care is what we might call maintenance or adulting. The original inspiration for today's sermon was a rather blunt article called What Nobody Tells You About Self-Care by someone called Maria Patton. Uh, it did the rounds online a few weeks ago, and here's a little excerpt of her hard-won wisdom. She says, What people don't often tell you is that self-care can be completely terrible. Self-care includes a lot of adulting and activities you want to put off indefinitely. Self-care sometimes means making tough decisions which you fear others will judge. Self-care involves asking for help. It involves vulnerability. It involves being painfully honest with yourself and your loved ones about what you need. She goes on to talk about attending to medical matters, making dental appointments and eye tests, turning up for smears and mammograms, financial matters, bracing yourself to check your bank balance regularly when you'd rather not look at that, paying your bills, and also practical domestic matters, bracing yourself to mend and maintain the bits about the house that you rely on, staying vaguely on top of your paperwork and keeping a reasonably orderly environment to live in. These sort of things are all too easy to let slide when you're not looking after yourself, when things are not going well. One way of motivating yourself to do this necessary but not very fun self-care is to think about your future self as almost a separate person. You're doing a kindness for future you. In that same article, Maria Patton also makes reference to a second strand of self-care that I want to mention, though she does it in a slightly backhanded way. I'm going to call this strand Little Boosts, 
It's the sort of self-care that you might typically read about in glossy magazines. She says, typically when self-care is referenced, the speaker is referring to activities and experiences that bring you pleasure. Go to a yoga class, take a walk on a sunny day, protect your leisure time, get a manicure, soak in a bubble bath, treat yourself. And although she's a bit flippant about it, she also says, pleasure is great and it's important. During seasons when I'm depressed, I force myself to indulge in pleasure as though it were a lifetime. Because feeling bad all day, every day, is exhausting. It's not good for your body or your heart or your psyche. So when everything is getting on top of you, a bit of escapism is okay, surely. Temporarily soothing or distracting activities can provide a little boost to help you get by, watch some undemanding telly, get out a jigsaw puzzle, go dancing, have that bubble bath. It's not like you're going to run away from your troubles or the world's troubles indefinitely. It is totally legitimate to claim a bit of breathing space to recover and regather yourself. As a bit of an aside, the uh, journalist activist Laurie Penny has written a terrific article on this matter which she called Life Hacks of the Poor and Aimless, in which she speaks up for self-care whilst offering quite a strong critique of what she regards as the wellness industry, the uh, capitalist way of encouraging you to spend ever more money on treating yourself. Um, she notes that many of those who are most concerned about the state of the world those of us who engage in various forms of activism to try and make the world a better place, those people full of compassion for others are often spectacularly bad at self-care. You might say that these people, us people, often forget to put our own oxygen masks on in our rush to show concern <coughs> to others, in our rush to put the world right, where suffering and injustice around us seems overwhelming. So Laurie Penny has got this to say on the matter. The hard, dull work of self-care is about the everyday impossible effort of getting up and getting through your life in a world that would prefer you cowed and compliant. I'm sick and tired of seeing the most brilliant people I know, the fighters and artists and radical thinkers whose lives work might actually improve things, treat themselves and each other in ludicrously awful ways. I sometimes take a day off because it became apparent that the revolution was not being driven any faster by my being sick and sad all the time. Late capitalism is as good an excuse as any for not getting out of bed, but huddling under the covers worrying about Donald Trump is a very inefficient way of sticking it to the man. <laughs> this brings us to a third strand of self-care, the sort that we need in emergencies. If you take a look in your order of service, you'll find a blue sheet. And on the back of that, there's some very densely packed text. If anyone wants a bigger version, I can provide it later on. Um, this is something that's entitled, Everything is Awful and I'm Not Okay. Um, for anyone listening to the podcast, just Google that phrase and you will find the original. It's a transcript of something that's been circulating online for a while now. It's primarily aimed at people who are in a very bad way, maybe with depression or some other mental health concerns. Uh, but I think it's more widely generalisable, um, with nuggets of practical wisdom for any of us in a crisis. When we get into a bit of a state of one sort or another, that sort of self-care we need is more like first aid. And I think it's quite useful to have a list like this on hand to keep us afloat, prompting us to attend to our basic physical needs, emotional needs, social needs, and giving us a few little nudges to change our perspective and help us to just hang in there until something shifts.
And the fourth and final strand of self-care that I want to mention kind of takes us back to where we started. It's about working on our underlying attitudes and habits. And as such, you might say it's about self-compassion as a spiritual practice, about unreservedly including ourselves in our circle of compassion and simply being a bit kinder to ourselves in good times and bad. As you'll see on the other side of the blue slip, there's space for you to give this some thought, if you want to, at some later point. Some questions and prompts relating to all four of these strands of self-care, which you could ponder when you get home and perhaps start to build your own self-care toolkit. And with that in mind, I'll close with a few words from the Unitarian Universalist minister, Sandra Fees, who says this. Self-compassion allows us to embrace ourselves with kindness when things are going well and when they aren't going so well. It provides us with a balance, with a stability in our emotional life. We can begin to see our own inherent worth and dignity and honour it. Compassion is a human need. We each need to love and be loved. As with compassion towards others, compassion towards self takes commitment and practice. May we learn to be good friends to ourselves. Amen. Within each of our hearts there is a most glorious light. Go forth and let its spark help you understand what troubles both you and others. Go forth and let its light of reason be a guide in your decisions. Go forth and bring its ray of hope to those in need of help in both body and spirit that they may find healing. Go forth and fan the flames of passion to help heal our world. Go forth and spread the warm glow of love, pushing back the darkness. Go forth and share your glorious light. Amen. <laughs>